Well, we left off having just finished chapter 20 of Revelation, which means we are in the final two chapters. Of course, chapter 20 finishes with what is, what is often referred to as the final judgment. And of course, Revelation has its own unique take on this. Remember, one of the most fruitful sort of tools you can have in terms of reading Revelation is just to see that it is like various snapshots or various paintings complete with the artist's different emphases on the same event. So we get different angles at it. And finally here at the end of chapter 20, we get the angle um, where <clears throat> the focus is upon the dragon being cast into the lake of fire. So just to lead us up into chapter 21, let's read this last section of 20 together. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This is reminiscent of Isaiah, that the, that, the scroll, that the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Everything will come to an end. There's another, I think, I think rather beautiful way of visualizing this, that as, as Jesus predicts upon his, the, the, the eve of his second coming, the whole world is being thrown into turmoil and creation itself is coming undone. And we've, we saw this in, in one of the previous sets of seven, for example, um, with, the, uh, with the seals being opened. We see, and, and also with the trumpets, now that I think about it, but we see creation itself shaking and not doing what creation is supposed to be doing. And one of the ways to visualize this is if Christ, you know, who, is, who is almighty God in the flesh, as he is drawing near, creation trembles at his presence and begins to malfunction simply because of who he is and the awesomeness of God himself. So then, that climaxes in his arrival and creation all but disappearing. In the imagery here, um, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. You can see here too, uh, John's way, the way of this vision that John is receiving, of describing how it is that the present heavens and earth come to an end. Scripture gives us many different descriptions of this, or several different descriptions of this. Peter, for example, talks about fire and everything being burned, and then the imagery there is rising from the ashes, comes the new heavens and the new earth. Um, certainly that fits the motif of the flood of fire and the fire of God's wrath. The, the correspondent to um, the flood with water. And then, <clears throat> and then too, we can see it here as um, just fleeing from his presence. So that there is no place to hide from the one who sits upon the throne. Then verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So this is every single person who has ever lived. And again, there aren't that many surprises because the vast majority of human beings have already perished and gone either to paradise with Jesus or prison uh, in the darkness awaiting. And this, this too, then we glimpse here the... Uh, 
the transient nature of heaven and hell in their penultimate form. So that heaven is, you know, <laughs> heaven is not your home. Um, you know, heaven is the place where you go and await the resurrection of your body. Hell is the place where unbelievers go and wait the resurrection of their bodies. And then on the last day when Christ returns, all the dead are raised, believer and unbeliever alike. And again, the vast majority of human beings already knows where they've been and where they're going. C.S. Lewis describes this in a very picturesque way, of course. I often quote it. Heaven is like, heaven is like the dawn just before the sun rises. It's light, it's beautiful, the dark, much, most of the darkness has already fled away, but it's not yet the brilliance of day. And by converse, hell is like, like just as the sun is setting or just after it's set. It's not entirely dark yet, but you know the darkness is going to deepen and come. And in the imagery of Revelation then, hell deepens to the, the lake of fire, and the eternal damnation, and heaven deepens to the new heavens and the new earth. But, but implicit in this, of course, is that the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is so powerful and so universal that all flesh shall be raised. The effects of death shall be entirely undone for the entire human race. doesn't mean that all are saved, of course, but it just speaks to the universality it helps us also come to terms with the human race less in individualistic terms, which we're used to thinking of, but the Bible is not so accustomed to thinking of, where you can view the human race, if you like, as a, think of Adam as a seed, and from that seed comes forth then a poisoned race on account of his sin. A poisoned plant springs forth from that. Christ is the new seed, the second Adam. From him springs a, a righteous tree bearing much fruit. So then um, we, we are poised to see then that as universal as the sin of Adam and its consequences bringing upon us suffering, the curse and death, so then also just as universal are the benefits of Christ where he takes away our sins truly and completely the sins of the entire race so much so that death cannot be and death is undone and all are raised. Only those who reject God, who reject Christ, who reject the new heavens and the new earth, um, only then do they get what they want, <laughs> to be away from God forever. So, great and small, all of the dead are standing before the throne. Books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So obviously then, I mean, this is showing that every single person, no one escapes. Even the sea <clears throat> gives up its dead. And death and Hades here in a sense personified, in a sense just the point of, of, of no retrieval, of no return. Even, even these give up their dead. And each is judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Here certainly personified the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is what we're waiting for. Also why St. Paul is often misquoted. Let's see if I can remember. 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We can only say that in part. We can only say that in part because death hasn't been put away. And Paul's point specifically in the grammar of that section is, then we shall say. That is, at this very moment when death is undone, then we shall say. So there's a sense in which this is obviously not yet complete. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So death is put to death. That was some of Luther's favorite language to use, particularly around, uh, well, preaching the, preaching the cross. He would talk about Jesus, the innocent one, and not only as the innocent one, but as God himself taking on sin, which is anti-God, and so Jesus becoming the sin of sin. And insofar as the law condemns, he's the law that condemns the law, and he is the death of death, and, and so he is the Satan of Satan, Right? Satan harasses and accuses us, and now he, Christ, harasses and accuses Satan. So Luther has some very beautiful ways of thinking about this. But here death is uh, put to death forever. And again, the second death does not harm those who have already experienced the first resurrection or the resurrection unto belief. We who are dead in our trespasses are made alive in Christ Jesus being united with him in baptism, we're buried with him, and we are raised with him so that the second death has no power over us. In terms of the, the deeds of Christians being judged, of course you have Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, and only the good mentioned of the sheep, those on his right hand, and only the sins mentioned of the goats, those on his left hand. So that's a fitting way to, to read this, where the books are opened and all our deeds are judged. Another way to, to read or conceive of this would be 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says there's no other foundation that can be laid. Here, more specific to the apostolic office and then the office of the holy ministry and those who perform their tasks within that vocation but by extension could be applied to all Christians. That is, that we build with gold and silver and precious stones, not with wood, hay, and stubble, because in the end everything is tested with fire, and if you build with wood, hay, and stubble, that's not fireproof. So the fire gets that, and you are saved, and yet as one who has suffered great loss. So there may, there may in fact be many Christian pastors who are saved because of their faith in Jesus, but lose effectively their, their entire ministry, their entire lives, um, simply because it was all wood, hay, and stubble. One other comment that I've read from a couple of different sources on that particular passage, if you're building with wood, hay, and stubble, you can also build really fast. So sometimes what's what's built up really fast and appears to be this great and wonderful work of God in our midst, in fact, isn't that, and, and the fires will test that in the end. Um, what is built slowly, painstakingly, with the fireproof materials of gold, silver, and precious stones, that lasts the test of time, even though it is quite minuscule in terms of a building uh, in the eyes of the world. So some things to contemplate there in terms of considering all being judged by what is written in the book. 
Now, what is key to salvation, however, is not what is written in the book of the deeds of your life, but whether or not your name is written in the book of life. And that's verse 15. This is the on the shadow of a doubt, what is definitive for whether one meets with the lake of fire and the second death or the new heavens and the new earth and eternal life. Verse 15 reads, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the book book of life is, is definitive. Now how do you know if your name's written into the book of life? Because that's all that matters, right? So is there a secret decoder ring that you can... Is there a mystical elevator that somewhere out in the Andes maybe you've got to hike up a million and one steps, not eat anything for like 40 days, find the mystical elevator, go up there and read in the book of life. How do you know what's in the book of life? How do you know if your name's there? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, maybe. Ah, baptism. Yeah, and if we wed those two together, so, so how so in baptism? Because what is, what is hidden before us in God, even in a sense before time, whether or not we are predestined, what is hidden is revealed to us in time and space by Jesus Christ through his means of grace. It's no accident that you were baptized. Now, obviously, you can reject all of this and turn away from all of this in unbelief, but look at what God is doing in time and space. He is choosing you through the waters of holy baptism. And just as he's writing his name upon your forehead and upon your heart, he's also writing your name into the book of life. And I suppose, I mean, it may go, it may go a little far, but I don't, think, I don't really think so. Because Jesus describes himself as being the life, that this book of life is none other than Jesus. And so to have your name written upon him, you know, also takes on a, also takes on a, uh, a sacramental aspect in terms of the Lord's Supper. We become one flesh with him. Our name is his name, his name is our name. We are written there written upon him, written upon the book of life with the ink of his blood, the blood of the new covenant. So we can think in those terms too. But be that as it may, however sophisticated or not we want to try to get with that, the point that remains is that the election of God before the foundation of the world and the writing of your name in the book of life is made known to us in time and space through the means of grace, the preaching of the word to you. God, there's no accident. There's no accidents with God. The baptism... The Lord's Supper, the absolution, the preaching of his word is all him electing you in time and space. And this is exactly what our Lutheran uh, fathers saw and penned for us, you may remember, in the Formula of Concord, Article 11 on election. So you can go read that right from the source if you like. So again, how do you know if your name is written on the book of life? You can say, I'm baptized. And God does not lie. He's not going to tell me here that I'm his and belong to him. And then I'm going to go up to heaven only to realize that that's not the case. God doesn't lie. Which is, such a, which is such a better question than do you really believe? Do you really believe is actually the devil's question, I think. Because he's trying to bait you into doubt and cynicism. And he's trying ultimately to try to get you to decide if you believe on the basis of if you keep the first commandment or not. 
So a far better question than do you believe is to simply say, does God lie? Does God lie? No, he does not lie. He does not lie when he tells me that I'm baptized. He does not lie when he tells me my sins are forgiven. And of course, that's what faith confesses, right? Faith holds God to his promises, confesses those promises of God. So it's a, it's a far better way of handling that question when it gets pressed upon you. All right, I saw a hand waving desperately in the back. Well, I'm not desperate. But, oh. <laughs> but Dave wouldn't let me have the mic. Okay. <laughs> so, I know. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I had this conversation with my sister a few months ago because she was in a Bible study where they were pointing out that you're judged by your deeds. And I said, yeah, but we're seen through Christ. You know, we were taught in catechism that God looks at us through Christ and that he is the Holy One who in turn makes us holy. Mm -hmm. So I kept saying that. She says, but it says you're judged by your deeds. And I had no argument for it because that's what it says. Mm -hmm. And I told her I would ask you, which I neglected to do. But here we are. So... Um, I understand what you're saying, but what do you say to somebody who says, but that's what it says? I, what's their point in trying to argue that way? I don't know. She wasn't arguing it. I'd, she w- was, well, I'd want to keep asking questions to discern what that is, and then you could get to your answer, right? Because are they, are they saying something that's incorrect? Or are they say- I mean, it's true enough. and I, I mean, this made me really uncomfortable as a, as, as, as a somewhat radical Lutheran. Um, when I was a somewhat radical Lutheran, because countless texts talk about the judgment in terms of works. I, I just mentioned two of them. I mean, not really countless. That's hyperbole. But, you know, Matthew 25 is works. 1 Corinthians 3 is works. Um, this text is, uh, is in some respects works, particularly if you drop back to uh, chapter 19, um, the fine linen that clothes the bride of Christ is the righteous deeds of the saints. If you just leave the Bible as it is, and, and this is too, why, you know, you might be a radical Lutheran if the Athanasian Creed gives you heartburn, <laughs> right? And at the end, those who have done good will go into everlasting life, and those who have not, into everlasting death. I mean, that's just what the Bible says over and over and over again. Now, how you sort through that and sift through that and separate and distinguish law and gospel is of the utmost importance. And in all of those texts, you'll see that the truths of the Reformation, that we are justified by grace through faith on account of Christ alone and not by our works, that that's absolutely true. But again, we shouldn't have this allergic, immature reaction, right, and, and feel threatened by the fact that so many of the texts that talk about judgment, in fact, do talk about works. Jesus had no problem with it. Paul had no problem with it. John had no problem with it. The authors of the Athanasian Creed and everyone who subscribed to it have no problem with it. We probably shouldn't have a problem with it either. Yeah. All right, Alice and then Eric. will. I don't think she had a problem, but she said, what do I say to them? And um, I, I think that answers the question, but thank you. Yeah, I mean, if it's a Roman Catholic angling for uh, salvation by work, salvation by merit... You can poke holes in that. You can say, absolutely, it's by works. How are you doing? <laughs> Do you got enough? By the way, how many is enough? Because I'd like to know. I mean, yeah, right? 
Yeah, so if you've got a Roman Catholic who's trying to edge that way, that's fine. I, I mean, if you've kind of got one of these, like, radical grace folks who's trying to, you know, deny, deny that or deny the value of works or that kind of thing, I mean, you push in another direction. I, kind of as I was just doing, I think, right? Trying to poke holes in these, in these opposite errors that have occurred. These, this reaction to the biblical text and this overreaction against the biblical text um, and against the tradition of the church, the ecumenical creed. Yeah. Perhaps you've already said it in so many words, but maybe, maybe this simplifies it. Is it accurate to say that Christ lived a perfect life and he did good works and his good works were credited to us. Is that, is yeah, that accurate or not accurate? Absolutely accurate. Okay, so then if we're judged by our deeds, they're actually Christ's deeds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. You can do that by imputation, which is the most common and the most clean. You can also do that, I th- you know, you have to be careful here because you, you, you can run into some errors to be sure. And we want to avoid those errors uh, condemned in the formula of Concord. But you can do kind of an ontology type of thing. If you just stick with Jesus' words, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Whoever does not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Right? So you can, you can do a straight up forensic thing. You can do an ontology thing. The key is to stick with the text and avoid the ancient heresies <laughs> where people have done this in order to sort of backdoor us back into a kind of works righteousness or a meriting of one's salvation. So that's a great point, Eric. Thank you. All right. Doing okay? Yeah? All right. Let's, uh, let's go on then. So <clears throat> into, into chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So remember, the old have fled away from the presence of God. Now John sees that the new has come. And this is why Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. So that humanity remains the crown jewel of God's creation. But now not only is humanity restored and raised in our bodies, but all of heaven and earth is restored and made new. In a sense, it's all, not even in a sense, just objectively, it's all entirely better than the Garden of Eden. Although if you think of the Garden of Eden all over again and the paradise of Genesis reinstated, you're a lot closer to the truth in terms of your thinking than you are if you think, I'm going to be disembodied in this place called heaven, floating around as a ball of light while Enya plays in the background, and I'm wondering if I know anyone, because we've all been lobotomized, and everything's super trippy, and then maybe somebody hands you a, a harp or something. I mean, I don't know. This, the ideas of, of the West, in ter- the late West, in terms of what heaven is, are just preposterous. As I hope you can see, it's like the medicine of revelation is to realize how stupid we all are in terms of how we view heaven and how we view angels and all of these things. I mean, the devil has had a heyday making all these things so ridiculously cliche and also completely alien to the scriptures such that when we read the scriptures, we don't even recognize them. 
you can pick up any any number of books just almost at random of the the kind of like I died and went to heaven for 45 minutes and came back. And they're almost all entirely wrong because they don't have anything to do with the scriptures or the scriptural version of heaven. So much so that I kind of wonder if the Eastern Orthodox aren't right in their read of this, or at least a couple of their more outspoken members, who say that that these experiences that people have are all delusions of Satan to mislead them and to mislead the world. Makes more sense then they went up to this place called heaven that looks nowhere like the biblical heaven. Okay, so, so um, the new heavens and the new earth, and we are raised in our bodies, and while we want to think in concrete terms that take our minds not to these Gnostic ways of thinking that I've just described and these Western ways of thinking, but concrete so that maybe the first step is we go back to Genesis and think how concrete and how good and how sinless and deathless it all was. And that's our starting point. And yet the new heaven, the new earth transcend uh, what Eden was. They're infinitely better than what Eden was. Yeah, Irenaeus picks up on this, and Luther picks up on this probably from him in his Genesis lectures. But, I mean, I don't want to overstate the case. I think I've been overstating a lot of things today, as is my way. But uh, there's a sense in in which man is not yet made in the image of God, even in the garden. There's a sense in which that process is meant to continue. So Adam and Eve, so God says, let us make man in our image. And indeed, he rests from his work. But does that mean he's done shaping and forming Adam and Eve into what they were always meant to become? Irenaeus and Luther say, no. The initial work of creation was done, but man was not yet made in the fullness of the image of God. And that wouldn't be achieved until Christ becomes flesh at the climax of this. And we realize what it means to be in the image of God in the fullest sense. This is also probably the emphasis on, in the, in the early church literature, even in our catechism to some degree, of Christ being true man. I think sometimes we take this merely in the sense of like, he really truly was a human being who had flesh and blood. And that's fair, that's fine. But all the more, Jesus is man-made in the image of God. He is man-made in full maturity. Does that make sense? So that when we look to Jesus, we see what we are all, what God is making us into. That we too would be sons of God. So then this process, this process culminates in Genesis, which God calls good, and to what is, what is ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, which is, in a sense, perfect or complete. So there's this journey. We fell from that journey due to sin. Christ redeems us so that that journey is once more ours. And this is why, why Paul, it's such a big deal for Paul that we grow up in, into the full stature of Christ. The full stature of Christ. There's a sense in which we're not yet human. We're not yet man. And we only glimpse and see what that is when we see Jesus. Okay, so in the new heavens and the new earth, all of this is realized. 
the trajectory that we were once set upon in the garden to achieve has now been achieved for us by pure grace on account of Christ Jesus. And John says, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What's God got against the sea? Well, it's just viewed as the realm of, of chaos, the realm of unpredictability, the realm of demons. And so that's really the sense. It's not saying that the new heavens and the new earth isn't going to have a sea literally. Um, but we'll, we'll find out. I mean, we'll find out. But this seems to be more indicative of what the sea represents. I mean, thus why in verse 13 of chapter 20, the sea is singled out and put right next to death and Hades, these powers outside of the control of man. And also why Jesus in his ministry, what factors so prominently is his control over the sea, walking on the sea, taming the sea, etc., and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we're back to the marriage motif. We last saw this back in chapter 19, verses 6 and following. And here the bride is depicted as the holy city, the New Jerusalem. It's coming down out of heaven from God and it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, her husband being Christ himself. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. These lines in particular... The, the words that, of the voice that comes from the throne in verse 3, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is pretty much the climax of the whole Bible, I think. And I think that this is the climax of the entire human race and of the entire, entirety of human history. What starts in part and is hinted at in the garden that the Lord walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and yet there's some mystery there, to be sure. And there's not yet the sense that God dwells with them and is one with them. And then obviously sin rules all, ruins all that real fast, so that there's alienation from God and hiding from God and all of this. But then what does God, what does God do he makes his promises to the patriarchs of one who will come into the flesh, the offspring, who will undo the work of the serpent and bless all the families of the earth. And that begins to be established. Do you remember in, ex in the Exodus where why it, what, 
the reason that Moses gives to Pharaoh for, their, for, for wanting to let my people go. It's so that they can come out into the wilderness and serve me. And the language there is, is liturgical. So this is, this is the first hint of a corporate reunion and of God dwelling with man. And of course, we know what happens is through the drama of the Exodus, once they're out there, God gives instruction for the tabernacle to be built. And the tabernacle is the first glimpse we have of God dwelling with man and the sacrifice of the animals pointing to the sacrifice of, of the, the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world, but showing that for God to dwell with man, there has to be blood atonement for sins. This then graduates, you know, 500 years later into the temple where more securely, more permanently, the dwelling place of God is with man. And in both of the imagery, in, the, in terms of the the aesthetic and the architecture, the decorations of the tabernacle and especially Solomon's temple, the theme is the wedding of heaven and earth, that God dwells with man. It's It's no mistake then that as the temple is destroyed, um, this, yeah, this temple is destroyed in 587 by Babylon, um, that prior to that, Ezekiel depicts God leaving the temple. The covenant has so, has so irreparably been broken that the dwelling place of God is not with man. So a huge moment biblically. Israel is more or less condemned to an earthly slavery from that time forward, even at the rebuilding of the new temple, where there's both rejoicing and weeping, all the way to the coming of Christ. Now, it's John who picks this up, the same author of Revelation, who picks this up in his prologue of his gospel, which some see as really Revelation part one. And this then is the second part. But there he says, the word became flesh and the language is tabernacled among us. So the tabernacle has changed. Over the course of, the, of Jesus' ministry, you see this in his relationship to the temple, in his cleansing it, in his purging it, and then ultimately in his commentary, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, raise it again. And he was speaking about his body. Now, the next development we get of this is the ascension of Jesus, where he ascends and, and yet remains. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and locates himself for us in the sacraments. So what is the chief sacrament? I mean, baptism is the, is the sacrament of entrance, but the sacrament of the altar, remember what Christ says, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And he's talking about his body. And what does he, what does he say in, in the sacrament of the altar? This is my body given for you. In other words, the temple now is the sacrament and the dwelling place of God with man right now is chiefly in the sacrament. That's how we experience uh, God's presence for us with the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus, mediating that presence for us. But this communion with God, as much as this is the ultimate 
of this age and of this heavens and earth. The absolute ultimate is yet to come in the new heavens and the new earth when our communion with God is made perfect, when there's no longer a separation on account of sin, when our communion with him is so complete that chapter 21, verse 3 and following rings so profoundly true and weaves together the entire narrative of God's interaction with man and what his purposes have been from the start. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And his communion is so rich with us that we become one with him and one temple with Christ, living stones being built up into a living temple. And God indwells us. That's Jesus speaking about the Father and I making our home within you. And the language of the Spirit indwelling us. Uh, The language of the New Testament is often as a down payment. Because a down payment isn't the whole thing. It's just part. And so the fullness is yet to come. So the complete indwelling of the Holy Trinity with us. And we finally made into the image of God. Here ring true all the scriptures that talk about man as small g gods. And you can see the grain of truth and the perversion that is Mormonism. And I don't have to go into that, I don't think. But the grain of truth is this very fact that God makes us, um, while still creatures and while certainly still underneath him, as close as you can possibly be to God, as one as you can possibly be with him, even to the point of saying he dwells in us and we in him and he is capital G God and we are small g gods, as the Psalms testify. So this is, the, this is then the climax, I think, of the whole scriptures and really of, of maybe the most central theme or central motif in all of the scriptures, the wedding of God and man, the wedding of heaven and earth. All right, and that, thus Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Verse 5, also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Here we see Christ with the same title previously given in Revelation to the Father. And really, really, again, just bespeaking the Johannine Christology that you see In John chapter 14, for example, where he says, Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, let me get out of the way. Here he comes. Jesus says, have I been with you still uh, so long and still you do not know me? I and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus in John's theology is if you want to see the Father, you don't look at the Father, you look at the Son in seeing the Son, you see the Father. In seeing the image of God, you, see, you perceive the invisible God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
This is really interesting language. Yeah, this is really interesting language. Even if one, if one takes this to be the second person of the Trinity, uh, our Lord Jesus, as I have done, there is very much a sense biblically, it's a minor point, but there is a sense in which Jesus is also our Father. Now, we, we're normally, we normally think of him as our brother and God as our Father. That's sort of the dominant way of thinking. But remember in Isaiah, this comes up in our, in our uh, Advent and Christmas text. Remember when he's called the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace? And in Isaiah 53, at the end of, his, uh, of Isaiah's description of his passion, he shall see his offspring. And again, it's referring to the Messiah. So there is this minor motif that runs through the scriptures of, of Jesus as our Father. And it may well be, it may well be true here in the language of, I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, why, why water? Why water? I mean, of course, there's, the, there's Jesus in the gospel, and the, the living water that springs from him that whoever drinks might have life. And of course, that's the immediate referent. But why in the context of the new creation do you think there's this central and foundational reference to water? Yes, right. In Genesis, you have God creating the heavens and the earth. They're without form and void. Darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. So it, it's no surprise to us that we have that theme here as well, that water figures as central. Um, and of course, those of you who said baptism, that's not wrong either. Baptism in the, in the early church, and I don't, I don't quite have my mind wrapped around this yet or wrapped around how best to teach it. I just know it's true. Um, and, the, and the biblical experts tell us that it's true. But in the, in the ancient world, I think it kind of comes to this. Like, in the ancient wor- world, you would bathe in a river. And as long as you sort of, like, lean upstream, you can take a drink. You know? I mean, they're not having filtered water, right? And so, so the idea of bathing and drinking um, are, are one and the same. And so baptism, baptism carries this same idea of um, water that cleanses washes away sin, and water that enters within and gives life. And so to see a baptismal reference here, not wrong at all. Not wrong at all. The one who conquers harkens back to the seven letters that were in the preface of Revelation. And thus we become sons of God. So, um, you know, and again, like in the... In the words of the eminent theologian Stephen Colbert, what's the son of a duck? A duck. So what's the son of God? A God. Yeah, I mean, that's the scandal of being called sons of God. 
That's the, that's the real scandal and punch of being called sons of God. And I don't think we get that. To be called sons of God means, in a very real sense, to be just like him, like father, like son, of the same kind. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here is either Jesus, which I think I'd kind of tend toward, or God, not ending on gospel. You can write him the nasty letter. <laughs> so he mentions the blessings of those who believe and the curses of those who don't. Very interesting that he uses the language of cowardly as the lead. Mm, yeah, the oppression that comes, the persecution, I think envisioned in Jesus' parable as the sun, right? And those who have no root cannot endure the cowardly. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. It just is interesting. I mean, again, if we were writing this, we'd lead with the faithless. So it's just interesting anytime God does it his way, the cowardly, the faithless, then, and so on and so forth. Now, in what sense are, the, are they these things? Because they're outside of Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to be in Christ is not to be any of these things, not to, ha- not to be counted as any of these things by God. But to be outside of Christ then is to be counted as what you are. All right, verse 9. A shift. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So this ties us back into the theme with which chapter 21 began. In chapter 21, verse 2, we see the holy city descending uh, from heaven, prepared as a bride. And now we pick back up with that, that Jerusalem um, is coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Now, what's the first thing you notice? That, the, that this bride and this salvific picture isn't about me and Jesus or you and Jesus. It's, it's corporate. It's corporate. It's the whole body. It's the whole city. 
And that is so extremely refreshing to see. The emphasis on individual personal salvation has its place, but the emphasis on the corporate work of God in calling a people and a city for himself arguably has more emphasis in the scriptures. This obviously is descriptive. Uh, what, what God has of himself, he gives and bestows to the city. So it has the glory of God. It has the radiance like a most rare jewel. Remember the earliest vision we had as soon as we went with John up into heaven in the earliest chapters of Revelation. Gosh, I think it was chapter No, I don't know what it was. Maybe chapter 4. But as soon as we get into heaven, he sees the throne. And remember the one seated upon the throne? He's described as these flashing jewels. And here we see that again, only he's bestowed them upon the holy city of Jerusalem. Like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So here's a beautiful picture of the city and um, the, the word of the apostles being foundational. Here, I think, too, whereas earlier it might have seemed a bit speculative to you, it kind of does to me, where you have the 24 elders and the, and the read on those the, as best we can is like the 12 of the 12 tribes and the 12 of the 12 apostles and by 12 and 12 Old and New Testament combined, you get the 24 elders. But I think a text like this really does strengthen that because you have here in such close proximity and connection the 12 gates and the 12 foundations. The 12 gates, of course, having upon them the names of the tribes of the sons of Israel and then the foundations, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Mm, We're going to have to talk about this next week in some depth and detail because this is the climax of Ezekiel's vision. When the the temple is destroyed and rebuilt, not in keeping with its former glory, the climax of Ezekiel's prophecy and text is that a new otherworldly temple will come. And that's what we're seeing here, and that's why it's being measured, just as Ezekiel was called to measure it. So we're meant. So John means to tie us into that reality of which Ezekiel prophesied. It is now being fulfilled. Yeah, so that's it for today. We're over time anyway. Thanks for your attention.